0: This episode is all about learning how to perform under pressure because, let's face it, no one has an exemption from pressure. One of the leading authorities on performing under pressure is Dr. Kerry Evans. He is a forensic psychiatrist, former professional football player, and Rhodes Scholar, and he has a private practice working with some of the most elite teams and organizations on the planet. He's worked directly with New Zealand's All Black Rugby Team, Arsenal FC, and F1 Team Mercedes, AMG Petronas Motorsport. This episode isn't only for the elite, but for everyone, since dealing with pressure is something we all experience. If you want to become better at dealing with pressure, improve your performance, or become a master at accomplishing things, this episode is definitely for you. Anyone looking for a new job this year? Or are you a company who's looking to hire great talent? If so, you might want to check out the job hiring platform, CultureFinders. I'm sure you're thinking, what's different about CultureFinders compared to the other job hiring platforms? Well... Other platforms only focus on your job skills and trying to match you with as many companies as possible. What CultureFinders does different is that they uncover the preferences, personalities, unique talents and abilities that make up each job seeker and matches them with the company that these traits best align. It's not about sending 100 jobs, but about connecting you with the right job. We know your value to companies goes beyond your resume, and it's time you find a company that sees yours job seekers create your free profile today at culturefinders.com and if you're a company hiring you get a free job posting today that's culturefinders.com oh yeah just so you guys know culturefinders and what got you there is actually hiring right now so jump on culturefinders.com to create your free profile and hopefully we'll be working together soon dr carrie evans welcome to what got you there how you doing today Shina Sean, greetings from New Zealand. Yes, no, the other side of the world. This is, this is one of the great things about technology. Uh, we're, we're able to connect. You're someone I, I've learned a great deal from. So this is just such an interesting and fascinating conversation for me. And it's really going to, I hope, radically change the way the listeners think about pressure. And because you, you've really shaped it and changed my perception around pressure. But before we do that, I would love to unpack, uh, just because you are a high performer, what your day looks like. Do you set up any routines, habits that you do throughout the day uh, just to get yourself up and going on the right foot?
1: Uh, We all have our ways, don't we? But I guess the main one over time has just been exercise. Uh, So for me, that's a big part of my day. So hopefully early on, depends on the schedule. Uh, But if I can't fit exercise in, I find I'm not at my best when it comes to the thinking part of it. Uh, so I think that's the main thing I'd say for me that I've learned over the years. Uh, the balance between the physical and the mental is a, a pretty uh, important one for me. Uh, and I get out of balance pretty quickly without that.
0: I'm wondering, as you've gotten older in your life, how you've adjusted the physical component in, inside of things. Uh, I'm asking personally because just such a hard charger for so many years of my life. And now I've got to scale back just the physical capabilities. Uh, I'm wondering how to deal with that.
1: Sure. I I recommend denial. Yeah. Uh, It's always always the best strategy. Uh, So you can pretend that you can still do what you you used to do. Uh, But look, it's difficult, isn't it, Uh, to to come to terms with with, um, all the vulnerabilities and the things that you can't do. Uh, Look, I think it's just a a refocus. It's, you know, you come to realise that you're not competing in the same sort of way, um, but maybe it's with yourself and, and you still have that same relationship with how hard you want to push yourself. Uh, or not. Uh, so look, my world's very small and in, in that respect now, you know, if, if I'm in the gym, but, uh, I busy myself, uh, and test myself and, and find myself operating in much the same sort of way, albeit not at the same level. I,
0: I know you've done such a research into the brain. Uh, you, you have a background there, um, forensic psychiatrist. I'm, I'm wondering what have you found to be the correlation to overall performance, um, with getting that, that physical exercise throughout the day. Have you come across any research there?
1: Look, it's more anecdotal from my perspective. I, I know there's research there, and, and I've read uh, parts around that. And, of course, now we're into a different sort of narrative around wellness uh, and a massive component of that, as well as the broader implications for treatment uh, of people with m- mental disorder and illness, uh, is around the physical component as well so look there is a lot of evidence around that but uh, i think most people find uh, that when they're active uh, in a good way uh, then it provides them with that you know sense of well-being uh, and, and i think once you take that away that activity and that balance then you know it doesn't work now it, of course there are constraints on people it depends so much on your walk of life and what you do naturally uh, and it's one thing saying that to athletes and another to, another thing to a person working in a corporate environment uh, where they just don't have that opportunity. Um, but nonetheless, uh, for me, that's what I've found. Uh, and of course, we know that there's evidence around that as well.
0: You mentioned that balance, and, and I'd love to to unpack the, the early days of Dr. Evans here. Uh, and I'm going to read you a quote I came across just so listeners can get a better idea of who you were when you were even younger. And it's Cary gained first-class honors in experimental psychology on a Rhodes scholarship at the University of Oxford while playing professional football in the English championship, awarded the Gaskell gold medal by the Royal College of Psychiatrists. He then specialized in forensic psychiatry and completed a PhD in traumatic memory. Talk about a high performer at a young age. Um, that's just very impressive. Uh, I'm really intrigued by that. So I, w- I would love to know. I mean, clearly driven at a young age, what, what was driving you? What, what was the motivation behind this?
1: Gosh, uh, so many layers to that, uh, <laughs> I guess. Look, you know, from my perspective, you'd start early and, and you can't talk about that without talking about your family and, and parents. Uh, both of my parents uh, were, were achievers Uh, in their own right and sort of sought out new territory. My my father was Welsh from a coal mining family in South Wales and a professional footballer, a soccer player. Uh, Met my mother in in the UK. She was from New Zealand, a New Zealand champion table tennis player. Uh, And we have a phrase in New Zealand, the overseas experience. Because we're so small and isolated, we've got this idea or concept that many of us will go to different parts of the world for your overseas experience. Um, now, that phrase wasn't around on my mother's day, but she got on a boat twice uh, and spent six weeks going across you know, to Europe to play in world championships and things like that to test yourself. So I think at an early time for me, although my parents didn't speak about it in that way, you know, they were both searching out um, you know, tests for themselves. Sport was clearly an important part of it. Um, they immigrated, my father immigrated with my mother back to New Zealand. So, I, I guess in my mind, football was a passion uh, from a young age. Uh, the academic side um, was obviously important, and it's the combination for me. Uh, and I think when I reflect on what you've just described, I, I guess it was the combination. Um, you, you know, I wouldn't say I'm the best footballer I knew where I sat with that, um, but I'd try my best. Uh, but being at Oxford, at the same time as playing professional football, that not many people have done that, uh, I guess. So it was the combination of those worlds that really intrigued me. Uh, so you're going from you know, one area where it's professional sport and the harsh realities of that uh, in what's now called the English Championship you know, to um, the university uh, where you're being tested in a, in a very different way. And I just love that balance. And, and I think that's sort of on reflection, part of the part of the journey that's been so stimulating
0: it's funny you say that about about the balance um and the combination of the two the the academics and athletics i remember growing up and uh with american football there were two football players um i'm pretty sure it was montrell role he played at florida state he was actually a rhodes scholar as well and i remember hearing tiki barber i hated the giants but tiki barber he was his valedictorian of his high school so the the best grades but he was also the best football player i remember him talking about on his best day on the football field, he thought he could be have his best day academically as well um, in the classroom. And I, I just loved that combination. And it it's it's very cool to hear about you um combining the two and, and driving you behind that. So so today, what what's driving you? What, what's behind everything you're going after now?
1: I guess the same sort of combination of things. You know, I find myself doing Two things in balance. One is the clinical. So I still work uh, as a psychiatrist, uh, working as a psychodynamic psychotherapist, working with individuals. Um, but on the other hand, I work in performance, uh, working with individuals, teams, organizations, uh, and helping them perform under pressure. So I guess the niche there is the perform under pressure. Um, you know, dogma uh, or, or description about how, how do we do that. Uh, and then on the other hand, it's helping individuals uh, who really want to extend themselves. Uh, and it's the balance between those two things. Now, there's a, there's a healthy tension there, I find, because the more I push myself in the clinical uh, area, I find that that helps work in the performance area. Uh, So I I try and reconcile those two things because, you know, in many ways when people look at this sort of area, it's so easy to look at the great and the good and and the phrase elite comes up all the time. But for most of us, that's a long way away. Uh, And it's nothing like the reality of our days if we're honest with ourselves. And so I guess the sort of driver through all of this is to think about making that more accessible for people. And so if I was to put it in a sentence, um, you know, the driver is, really about um, simplifying the mental world to help people perform under pressure. In a nutshell, that would be it. And so it's taking all those different perspectives, whether it's clinical, developmental, um, you know, the neuroscience, uh, and, and starting with people, everyday people, however good they are, in whatever walk of life, so from top to bottom, huge diversity, whatever sector, uh, and helping them get better So the first couple of reference points to tighten up the conversation really are, are you under pressure? And then how good do you want to be? And in particular, what I'm looking for is whether people want to improve. It's an easy thing to say, but most of us don't. Most of us don't reach anywhere near our potential. Uh, Now, when you work with people directly, um, you obviously can take a deeper dive. I guess the, the, the look with the groups, it's more of a surface level thing, but trying to develop a practical language for people, cutting through all that background and say, well, what do I do? So really the drive is around the clinician in me. Uh, you know, at at um I guess the heart of it for me is being a clinician. There's all the academic background, but how do I apply it in the real world? So people even got time for words like dopamine when I'm actually struggling and getting overwhelmed. Uh, what do I do? So that, that's the area of greatest interest.
0: That's what I love because no one gets an exemption from pressure. We, we all have it in, in any of our walks of life. And the, the first time you and I connected, uh, I think for me, this was this was the aha, where it's everything that, that you do with some of the most a, a elite teams, um, whether that be athletic or in the business world, what they're using, same techniques can be applied to, to anyone. Um, and that's what that's what I love. I love teasing that out. And I feel like a lot of your strategies it almost seems like you took these highly complex things and simplified them down. A lot of times, some simple fra- phrases and sayings, is, and that's what I love so much. Um, when did you first like, really start to, to feel that drive towards pressure scenarios, though? That seems to be a pretty specific um, circumstance that, that you studied and became fascinated with.
1: For as long as I can remember, really, uh, if I go back to my parents, you know, their drive to go as far as they, they can and into, you know, if someone says you can't do something, I guess that's in my nature. That interests me straight away um, to to test out that boundary. Uh, and then I guess through the teenage years, you know, when I was really, uh, you know, looking at sport hard, but pushing, you know, academically uh, I guess one relationship stands out, and that was with uh, a man named Renzi Hannum, who was, you know, a really gifted martial arts instructor, uh, graphic artist by by trade, uh, very skilled in that area as well. And and I guess we're very different, but formed a lifelong relationship with him. And one of the things is really understanding and simplifying this sort of whole process. Uh, it was about trying to. Not just present things in words, but in pictures. Um, because the whole idea here, it, it sounds so simple, but there's all sorts of ideas around. But what do I do in that moment? You, you can't stop under pressure and say, let me talk to someone or let me consult my book. I haven't got anything. You know, if I'm in a boardroom or on the playing field, I've actually got to do something there. I've got to be able to think of that in that moment. And so it's about the visual memory idea of it. So um, working, um, with Renzi Hannum over the years of what what are the ideas? He's really gifted anyway in sort of Eastern thought and different approaches uh, to, to mental performance. But actually trying to put that down on paper, in a picture, in a graphic, um, really helped, I think, the drive towards simplicity. Now, early on, it was too complex or it was too simplistic. And I'm a big fan of De Bono's idea that there's simplicity Um, But actually, it's a far side of complexity. So you start off uh, and it's it's simplistic. Here's a basic idea, but it's too simple. It's not going to be fit for purpose for difficult pressure situations. But also, we don't want an academic moment. You know, there are things going on you have to perform. So you get layers immediately with the different types of angles and ideas and concepts you want to include. But it boils down under pressure to some really simple things. And so the idea of simplicity is that what are the main things that I need to be aware of in this moment? And it all comes down, as we know, to attention and focus, but all of us get in our own way one way or another uh, for different reasons. And it's thinking about that and what will help an individual when they haven't got anything else to guide them. Uh, They've got to be able to go to a place in their own mind Uh, and then get themselves into a state of mind where they can think more clearly and perform. Uh, So, you know, to to summarise all that, that simplicity, it's, again, getting through all the complexity, getting something practical that can be applied. And so the test really is for people to be able to use it. I remember asking Renzi, you know, many years ago, how, how should I judge what I do? And he just sort of said in his nonchalant way, well, you know, is it useful? And I was thinking, gosh, it was one of those moments where you go, damn, do I faint praise. Is is that it? It wasn't that exciting or energising. And he said, like, I think you've probably misunderstood what I'm suggesting here. I thought you worked with people who who perform a depression. I was going, well, I do. And he goes, well, what's the threshold like for using something if it's not useful? I said, low. They'll kick it out. It's got to provide immediate value. And he goes, So to actually get them to use it, it must be providing some value because they'll have that feel. Whatever the science behind it, it will help them or not. They'll know that. So I'm going, yes. So he goes, well, that's the test then. And I go, okay, right, I think I've got that, but how will I know uh, if it actually is useful then? And he goes, well, did they use it? And it was one of those profound moments where I just couldn't see what was in front of me. And he has this way of cutting through it himself. Uh, And so, therefore, the test is always, is this something that people very quickly, they find it easy to use. It provides some value. And and they sort of like using it. They can see it uh, for what it is and go, yeah, I actually like using that. Uh, and there's nothing more satisfying than hearing stories of, say, a professional setting. And the next thing you hear is someone comes in the next day and say, I use this at home uh, in, in one way or another with my daughter or, or, or with my partner or with me or whatever. And y- you see they've transferred that across into the personal world. And now you know it's providing some value. So I think that's the, the idea of simplicity and value. It's the applied world, practical.
0: Yeah, and you even know last time we spoke, uh, I, was, I was even speaking about some friends who were in some very high-pressure business scenarios, uh, and they were using some of these frameworks. Uh, and there, there's so much to unpack just from those last few minutes, uh, Carrie. But I would love doing, because I think this would really help provide a framework and some context um, about some of these simplistic methods that you have. And I would love to hit on the red brain, blue brain. I think that would really shape this up. So I would love just to hear you uh, talk about this methodology, methodology that you've developed, and we can dive in from there.
1: Sure, sure. Look, there's a long tradition of trying to simplify how the most complex thing, our brains or our (laughs) minds, depending on your perspective, works, uh, and and simplifying that into some sort of dichotomy. Uh, But we don't want to oversimplify. But remember, we're working backwards. Uh, This is not an academic treatise. This is a practical moment uh, to help me perform mentally. So the way I see it is that if we're going to talk about performance, we first of all need to establish the context And so the first thing I want to do is understand the pressure that you're under, because all moments are not equal. And so to really tease apart the situation from your reaction to it, if we're just talking about an everyday situation, really, everyone's okay, everyone's quite comfortable. If we say, no, we're talking about I want to perform better when I'm really not comfortable and I'm under pressure, that's a different question entirely. And so really, let's first of all start with an understanding of the context and work backwards. So it's not trying to gather huge amounts of information. It's really just a like in sport, I might say, let's start on the brass. Give me a moment. What's the moment that interests you that you want to perform better in? Then when we come to the reaction side of things, it is our minds that are reacting to that situation. And to cut through the complexity, it's to argue that we have two systems. We have one system that's primed Uh, For survival, it's fast, it's automatic, uh, it works on pictures uh, and feelings, uh, and I just simply call that red. We have another system uh, which developmentally evolves later, um, and it works on logic and numbers uh, and sequences uh, and that metacognitive ability, um, and that's a slower, cooler system. Once we've survived a moment, if we see it in that way, then we can adapt. And so this is really about your potential. And so red works in the here and the now, and it's more the emotional, the feeling mind. And then the blue can reflect on the past and scan the future. And so we have these two systems. And the simplicity of this is actually we know now that they interact. It wasn't the philosophy of 200 years where, you know, rational thought is good and feelings uh, are irrational and bad. We now know that they uh, interact. But it's not a fair fight, is it? So which one's stronger, red or blue? Well, well red is. You haven't got much potential um, if you're not alive. And so we know that red in those big threat moments can overwhelm us so that we can't think clearly. But we also know that blue has a say in this, um, and it can actually dampen down our responses. We can reframe situations and learn to see them differently. And so we've got these two systems, and the Red Blue Mind model would simply say, are they in balance or out of balance? And so what does that mean? Well, for any given moment, it depends on you as an individual with what you're doing. So there's a bit of a difference between being in a very physical, aggressive uh, sports match uh, when you might need more red Uh, Red gives you the energy um, in a position where you've got to think and navigate a side around, in which case you need more blue clarity. And so the, the idea here is that red is not bad and blue is not good. We actually need a combination in balance. And so that allows us to start to see that balance and if we get too much red that leads us into that fight flight or perhaps even a freeze reaction if we get too blue we can find ourselves into that in that overthinking paralysis by analysis situation as well and i think the real test here is what i like doing speaking to schools in groups uh, and the young ones and you can give a talk pretty quickly um, to them. And I, I did this recently to a junior school, a senior school, then the teachers and the parents to see how this all works. And when you have some of the groups afterwards and you ask them what they remember, um, I, you know, one student gave me really incisive feedback. And he said, look, a lot of us uh, get, get to hear people like you and they'll speak about five or six ideas and they're okay. And I was going, gosh, I've just done the same. He said, well, no, what you've done is slightly differently. Uh, gone about it differently. You've you've spoken about these ideas, but there's one core idea. It's just this red and blue balance. I said, did you get that? He said, everyone got it really quickly. Uh, And you've given us permission to feel some of these things that make us uncomfortable. That's okay. Uh, And the idea here is it's not good or bad. We don't like the judgment. uh, And you put us in charge ourselves. You haven't told us what to do. It's for us to see it, but it's in balance or out of balance. No problem. And so I think if um, students, young students can get it pretty quickly, that's a, a good test. Adults probably are balanced in their criticism. It's too complex. It's neuroscience or all that, or it's too simplistic. And so I must have it about right if the students get it. I'll, I'll put my faith in them.
0: That that childlike wonder sometimes it explains everything for us. I would love. Could you provide, and we can use the sports world, just because I know you've you've worked with a lot of people there, um, a real life scenario of how someone's feeling both red and blue, and then how they're navigating that in real time. Would you be able to do that? Sure.
1: Well, why don't we make it? You know, out of respect to the individuals um, that I work with, and you know, as a doctor, the confidentiality line. How about we think of a moment? You've got a, a sporting background uh, of note. How about we dive into a moment? What I like to ask people about is let's compare a moment, you know, maybe a period, the best 10 minutes of your best performance and your mind will take you back somewhere. Mm -hmm. And also the worst 10 minutes of your worst performance and your mind will take you back somewhere. And to help us understand, uh, we've got a contrast going now, and that's part of the method here. So it's not just free-floating. We we can compare that you had technical ability, but now we've got to look at your technical ability was probably pretty similar in both situations, but now the mental performance was slightly different. So if if we ask you, you don't have to give us all the details, but if you're comfortable with it, um, going back to the moment where it wasn't going well for you. Uh, do you have a picture in mind about where you were in that scenario?
0: Yep. Yeah, I certainly do. Would you like me to describe it or?
1: Yeah, sure. Why don't you start us off and just think about something about the situation, um, leaving names out of it as appropriate. Yep.
0: Yeah, no. So it just, things were moving too fast. Um, Usually in, in, the, in the scenarios where I feel like I'm, I'm performing really high, I almost feel like, I don't know, you ever saw the movie The Matrix, where Neo slows down and, and the bullets are going past them. It's You almost can analyze everything. You're moving at a much faster speed. Uh, when I don't perform well, everything's moving fast. It's almost like I'm playing catch up the entire time.
1: Sure, sure. And so when you say things are moving fast, so what? What did that do? That was what's going on inside. What did that cause? Why was it a problem?
0: I'm trying to think because it would almost seem that if it was moving fast, I wouldn't have to think as much and just let my natural ability take over. Um, so, yeah, it was almost it was almost like I was overthinking and overanalyzing things.
1: Um, sure. And that's that's a classic description. So if you draw a picture of that and I've asked people about this many times, I guess this is the, the phenomenology. This is where it comes from, this, you know, my early psychiatric training, very interested in the psychopathology uh, in the extreme or just. The phenomenology, what were people experiencing at the time? And the word that people say the most um, for, for high performers is overthinking. It was too busy. I had a busy mind. Now, when you draw a picture of that, you know, in many ways, you've got your blue brain saying, Look, you can do it, you can do it, and it's all positive, but not in words because it doesn't speak to you in words. Your red mind saying, Get out of here. It's not safe, Sean. You know, it's not, it's going pear shaped. It's not good. Get out of here. So the threat systems kicking in. And you're trying to convince yourself that it's going to be okay. So every time you say, yes, I can do it, there's another sort of unspoken voice saying, get out of here. No, you can't. It's not safe. And so when you set up that back and forth, you've got a busy dialogue or a busy mind going on. And so hence the overthinking um, type of, uh, of description. And you get in your own way. Uh, And so if you compare that to the moment where you were performing well, what would you say the difference was? Take us to that moment.
0: More free-flowing. I almost think of like a a jazz musician. Like You don't necessarily know where the next note's going to come from, but when it comes, like you're just going to
1: hit it and nail it. Um, It's it's very free-flowing. Don't have to think. And what about, sure, you don't have to think. And that's, that's the thing. And people often say, got you, Kerry. I wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking. And so if we if we compare that and think about the right balance here, you still need the energy of red, but there's some balance here. And so instead of the fight, flight, get out of the moment sort of response, or even the freeze, which we understand, th- those are pretty powerful F words, aren't they? Uh, if we think about it in those ways. So out of physiology, uh, 100 years ago, w- what's the other pathway? So everyone knows that story, but what's the other pathway to this? Now, the first thing is that to face the situation. And we know that most people don't. And I mean literally. So eyes go down, people try and get out of the situation. That's what fight, flight does or freeze. It takes you out of a threatening situation or if you're trapped, it just gives you that freeze in in the submissive situation. As opposed to the nervous system, the part of that that allows us to face that situation. Now to face that situation, even when things are not going well, we have to be able to step back and just hold our, hold our nerve. And then we need to be able to actually find our way around. Now, it might be that the answer is not immediately there. You're not following a script here. And that's the, the freedom that then comes with timing, with red and blue together. So I talk about face, find, and free. So it's not necessarily freedom from fear in the sense that it goes away completely, but actually, you're, I've worked with people for, for many, many years who are trapped in that sort of situation, and I mean mentally. And so it's releasing them to actually, it's okay, I don't have to get out of this moment so I can face it, and then I can operate within it. And I'm looking around, and hence that riff that you're talking about. You're trying to find where it goes. You don't know, but you're more fluent and flexible in your thinking, and then you're is on point, and that's the key thing when you've got red and blue together. And so just the contrast allows us to think about those different states of mind. And as you said, then the simplicity is, well, how do we package that? Well, really, three things are going on. When you get overwhelmed and you lose it, you've got that sense, yeah, well, what did you lose? Because we say that phrase. Do you have that phrase mm-hmm. in the United States? Yeah. You've lost it? Well, what is it that you lost? And I suggest that you lost your nerve. So that's the emotional part. And so it became too too tense in that situation. Then you lost your way. And so you lost the situational awareness. And then you lost your touch. And you started making simple mistakes, things that you know how to do. And you started overthinking and over-controlling it. And it went from fluent to mechanical. And so you operated in a tight, tense state or actually a, a... a very flat state and neither are conducive to high performance. Now if you want to flip that around instead of losing your nerve actually hold your nerve and just stepping back and getting some distance and seeing whether you're too red or too blue just gives you that instant moment of getting to grip emotionally with things. The next step actually is to find your way and that can be anchored physically as well. And the eyes are very important here. So if the first step back is a breath just to immediately calm the body, then the next one, often people are hunched down and raising the eyes and gaining, regaining situational awareness. And we know how important that is. And that's where you started to see new opportunities when you're performing well. And then in the right moment, you've got that sense of timing and feel. And that's when you can make your mark. And that's where you get, that freedom from fear. And so those little catchphrases uh, are quite useful for people. Now, in the moment, we need to really boil it down uh, to to its most simplest form. The one I use out of all of that is step back, step up, step in. And I think this is the one that you referenced with with your colleagues. (laughs) Because in many ways, you know, when you think about the the mental world, it's invisible. And I think this is what attracted me to it in, in the first sort of instance. It's sort of intangible. So how do we get at it? Uh, It's much easier to work in the linear world where we can measure things and see A plus B will go in this direction. But the mental world doesn't operate like that. Small things can have big effects. There's more than one way into a situation and more than one way out. And so how do we get to grips with all this? I sort of, to, to try and make this point, I talk about the mental gym. And I guess one way of positioning this, again, with the contrast is to say like, OK, imagine you wanted to get physically stronger. You'd be able to tell me where you go. You'd go to the gym. OK. And then what do you do when you get there, Sean? Well, uh, you go, Kerry, you go over there. There's a bench. And you, you do this. And that's got a bench press. And I go, that's it? It's such a simple movement. And you go, yeah, but there's a, a couple of principles here. There's resistance. You've got to put weight on the bar and push against it to the point of overload until you can't do any more to the point of failure. And I'll sympathize with you and go, I'm sorry, Sean, you know, you failed, that's terrible. And you go, no, no, I feel good. I've got a smile on my face. I've done a good workout. I pushed to my limits. And that's in the physical realm. Well, what about if you want to get mentally stronger? What's the equivalent? So where do you go to get mentally stronger? Where's your mental gym? Don't know. Uh, Okay. What's the simple movement? What's the equivalent? don't know what the mental movement is. I don't know what you're talking about, okay? And I presume the same principles hold that you like pushing yourself mentally until you fail and that feels terrific. You've got a smile on your face. And of course, we feel down and dejected and disillusioned and it's it's not the same. And so it's almost like we've got a double standard because it's invisible. And so one of the, I, I guess, important insights over the years is to go back to that graphic idea. What's the picture in your mind? If we can name something... And create a picture of it in a short sequence, then that's blue brain heaven. And for most people, that's rebalancing things. And that simple picture of all you need to do is just step back in the moment and hold your nerve, then step up in that sense of performance. So it's not enough just to step back, take a breath, and step back in, because you're back in at the same level. I saw that call, I call that a one dimensional technique. We need performance here. It's almost like mindfulness. Now, mindfulness is essentially about awareness, isn't it? You're stepping back, but that's an observational state. Now, in the middle of lacrosse or or whatever your moment is, you're not an observer, hopefully. You're a participant here. You're an active participant, so you need to do something. So the the moment that you've got a sense of where you sit mentally, now step up and see what's your next level of performance. More awareness. What's the first action? and then stepping in with timing. And it really seems that people take to this, the step back, step up, step in. It's such a movement. You don't even need the words, of course. You can visualize that movement. And then, again, the kids at school are interesting because I smoothed that curve out rather than, you know, nature doesn't have corners and, and created a sort of a wave with it. And they say, well, it's like the wave allows you to take you around there. It's more natural, it's easier to do. And so it's got that sense of rather being stuck in that position of overwhelm and underneath the wave where all you can see is threat actually just go through this process, you can step back, um, hold your nerve, now you can step up, see a bigger picture, see things in a different perspective, and now step in with that first action and be more effective. And then once you've started, you're back on top of the situation, then then you're moving. And if you see performance as movement, it's a very helpful way to, to see it rather than being stuck.
0: I'm wondering some of the big hurdles you must face. Is, is it largely around that that fixed mindset that, that people don't think that, that they can correct in the moment? Is that one of the bigger things you run into?
1: I think it's, I, I guess the the experience I've had over the years is that people get surprised. This is a good thing when people are surprised because it, it catches them out. Uh, and so if we go back to that mental gym Uh, Analogy. What I'm really searching for here is the whole idea of pressure uh, and then building up this understanding of that situation. And what we're talking about there is the fact that there are high stakes, there's some uncertainty, small margins with fast changes, and it all leads to judgment. And of course, socially, that's the, the trigger. And so when we elaborate on that, really we're asking you to perform when there are expectations here. And then there's going to be scrutiny on you and then the consequence of judgment. And in the end, that makes people uncomfortable. And the simplicity of all this is that what I'm most interested in, right across the spectrum, so the people who in the forensic world, you don't see it in terms of performance, but tragic things happen. They act without thinking, and that impacts lives seriously for many years and then at the other end of the the scale we talk in terms of winning and losing things but right across that spectrum the idea is that there are tough moments when you are uncomfortable and how we behave in those moments and I think that's why I was drawn to the forensic psychiatry this is real very very real and so the idea here is that how do you perform when you're uncomfortable and that's what we're talking about I'm going to leave aside all the other experience. And it's almost like there's a secret door, the tough moments that you experience in a day. And I remember one gentleman just threw his pen down and said, damn, I've been spending decades trying to get better. But really, on reflection, what I've been trying to do is become more comfortable to perform better. He said, I've been going in an entirely the wrong direction. So to go back to the mindset around it, What I've sort of found over the years is those that want to go higher, and most of us don't, we we work well within our limits. Those that want to go higher are interested in their vulnerabilities. And if you're going to operate near your limits and we talk in that sort of language, then it gets uncomfortable. That's unavoidable. But that's not a bad thing. And I think that's the idea here, that actually we want to stay in the moment. That's the opportunity. Uh, And it's a simple language, but if we see that, Every day, all day, we're making simple choices to opt out and default where we're kidding ourselves about a our level of performance. We can step up here. We can go smoother, faster, accelerate. We have a lot of opportunity to do things, but we opt out of that. We might tell a different story. But actually, once we see those two pathways, now we have choice. Once we've got choice, we've got control. And now we've got that, we've got the courage or the opportunity to have the courage to take that choice, because it does require that. It's not simple. And so I think that's the simple idea at the heart of all this. The mindset is around, rather than moving away from these uncomfortable moments, we've got to keep it in balance. You don't just live in there, and we all have a different threshold for it. But maybe these become enticing. You start looking for them in certain moments. You've got to calibrate it. We know all about that. But if you think about that, you know, when's the last time you really extended yourself and pushed at that limit? And then what value did you get from that? Really tested yourself.
0: That value is something I'm very intrigued by. So, so say we do have a high performer. They understand uncomfortable moments. They're, they're going towards them. How have you found and what have you used to unpack those moments, to distill them down just a, a bit more, to grow even more from them in a quicker pace?
1: It's about, so you, Again, like I said, start in that moment and work backwards. So I guess if you're going to see it in forensic psychiatric terms, it's about not just the situation, but what did you do and what was going on inside. So you can't change what you can't see. And so that's the powerful thing here. So what I'm trying to do is help people see what was going on inside that led to the external behaviour, to understand that a bit more The moment we've got a name for things and a picture for things, people settle. We know that mentally. Without getting into the physiology, we settle down and calm a little bit. And then we can see that we can apply it. So I'd go through those three stages. First of all, help them see. And I guess that's the clinical skill. Um, You you might be able to see it in yourself, but most people can't see when they're tense um, or they go flat. Uh, So when I ask you a question before, uh, about you know this moment or this period versus that and and you know did you see the subtle or did you experience the subtle things that were going on inside you did you notice those things and people are just not aware of these things uh, by and large and so to unpack it is really to help them see it once they can see it and understand it a little now with some simple language they've got different choices and they start to that's when the lights come on literally And you can do that individually, but also with teams, of course, and they start to actually not just survive, but then you can get a sense of thriving. Once you're really tested and feel it's okay in this environment, now how far can I go? And it starts to become more energising in that sort of thrive type of, of moment. But the idea is it's directional, so it's giving you a forced choice. Are you moving away or are you moving into this moment? And then if you've got that forced choice, then it helps people be a bit more honest with themselves. And because their language and their awareness is far, they're far more adept at the technical side than the mental usually. I've met few people who are exceptional at the technical and the mental. We just need that simple mental language that's practical in the moment, then I think that's the bit that they can quickly refer to, reflect on, and then get themselves going again. It's only a moment in time, but for those people, moments in time and small margins are everything, and, and you know this, and so that's the value they find from that uh, and understanding that that's not just a happenstance thing. Actually, this comes up all the time. And this is the nature of performance. It's not just about winning and losing. It's about putting yourself in environments where you're testing yourself. Win and lose it doesn't take you to your potential. You know, of course, in some environments, that's the big thing. And that's what people look at. But if, if you can't face winning and losing, success and failure, you know, that's going right back to our early attachment days. This is the pattern that's being played out. Is the, bo- is the moment too big for you emotionally or not? Can you stay in there? And when you ask people this question, you know, the test they've set themselves, well, if, the, if they've met every test, every challenge that they've set themselves, then it's not worthy of the name, is it? You've got to fall short for it to be a proper challenge. You know, you walk away from threats, you walk towards challenges. Now, if you th- see it in those terms, the issue isn't falling short. As my mother used to, to say, and you know, as a grandmother uh, to our daughter, you know, uh, aim high, but get close. And it's the process of being in that 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 sort of moment and seeing how close you can get. And often it's the mental side that holds us back a little. And I think that's the thing that's exciting for people. So it's really a simple movement uh, metaphor and uh, how you operate in these big moments. Just
0: so we're clear on the, on these high-pressure high moments, we can think about championship-level moments. What are you having the, these athletes, business professional, professionals do throughout the times leading up to that? So I, 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 maybe I'm wrong here, but should they have a safer environment that they can push their limits on? and then step up in bigger environments? Is, is that how you approach that?
1: Yeah, sure. So I, I sort of think in terms of a pressure wave. So if you imagine a wave at a peaks in the moment and then comes down, again, a simple way of understanding mental skills. Once you've got a simple model, not just hints and tips, but a simple model, let's call that the red-blue mind model in this instance, what are the red-blue skills that you need? Well, there's a skill in that moment when you're actually performing, when you haven't got access to anything. And so what I would argue is that that's probably the, the, the key skill. Uh, and that would be the step back up and in or the red blue decide do, getting hold of emotions, um, then the decisions and then the actions. All versions of the same thing, but the simplicity is to get that three-dimensional movement. Okay, so that's that skill. Or well, what about beforehand? Is this something that you should be doing to lead in there? Now, when we ask ourselves that question, Or afterwards, what about afterwards? If you think about many high stakes occupations, you wouldn't ask that question. You know, hospitals, the military, do they prepare? You know, do they review? You know, some better than others, but of course they do. And yet, for some reason in sport or in corporate settings, we don't think in those terms. And those are at the outset when there's low blue moments, Sorry, low read moments. And I I guess this is the key. It's one of the big mistakes. It's a rookie mistake that you see. Let's have a class board type of session. um, And what we're going to do is have there's low read. There's no threat. We're going to chit chat like now. Okay. And there's some ideas that you might like. And then off you go into your big moments. And then suddenly the pressure comes on. And what do I do? I can't think of the first thing. And so there's no translation across from one training moment to the performance moment. And that's because the performance moment actually probably has some decent red going. When the limbic system's activated, then your thinking capacity, your working memory capacity, all those things, shrinks. And so really the key here is can you maintain clear thinking when you're activated? That's the idea here. So strong blue in the middle of red. And that's what you're trying to simulate. And, of course, people know this, whether it's in aviation, that's how you practice. That's how you simulate. That's how you rehearse. You get as close as you can to the performance environment and simulate and rehearse those things. Now, you can do that mentally as well. Now, you can start off when there's there's no real activation around and there's a mental skill around that. The key idea with that um, technique mentioned in the book is, is around understanding what you can control, what you can't control, and then in the middle, and this is the bit that's missing for many, what you can influence. And once you've got a mental plan, then you're more likely to have anticipated that and were less thrown by things that happen uh, and more able to, to remain regulated in that moment emotionally. And so, again, it's time limited. You can do this in five minutes. That's the whole idea here. You know, Setting a plan puts people off. And what I've found, particularly athletes, let's just do it briefly, but you take them through it in a simple structure and it takes five minutes and they're good to go. Um, what about Uh, afterwards do you review well of course there's that debrief but do you debrief mentally as well find out emotionally what was your performance like decision making what was that like and then the actions you took and be able to do that succinctly and move so that you go back into a loop and so you've got that pressure wave I was referring to what about on the shoulders what do you do in the two minutes you're sitting outside the boardroom before you go in or the big one When you're a teenager and you're sitting a big exam, what do I do just beforehand? And and there's a technique around that. And this is the visualization sort of moment or however you phrase that. But again, I would argue that most people don't have something fit for purpose. This isn't a time to have something that's vague uh, and goes on and on. It needs to be time-limited, brief, to the point. And I'm sort of hugely attractive to, to the practicality of brief interventions that help. And then what about after a match or a big performance? So many people are activated, uh, can't sleep at night, things are going around in their head. You know, How do you come down? And so I, I think sort of there's five areas for most people to look at. What do you do to plan at the start? What do you do to perform in that moment? What do you do to rehearse just as you move from that planning into you're on the coach before the game, you're in the dressing room, you're just about to go on stage? And then what about the downhill slide here? So you've just moved out of performance. How do you sort of recover quickly? And then how do you review? And I think those are the sort of five areas. If you ask most people, do they have something good to go, something effective, something brief, something structured that they're not just making up? I haven't met too many people who, who do that. How about yourself?
0: In certain contexts, yeah, but to be honest with you, uh, many circumstances, no, and it's, it's one of those things, um, it, it almost feels like there's too many inputs coming in, and a lot of these things you mentioned, it's almost like we need to step back um, and, and slow down a bit and, and analyze our process and if we're approaching this in the right way. Um, so if I'm being honest, no, there, there's plenty of room to be made up here, really getting a great system for these five. Um, yeah, like you, like you mentioned, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of people right now that they're looking in the mirror. They're probably like, you know what? Yeah, we, 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 we could do a little bit better here.
1: Yeah, sure. And it's not being too highbrow about this. So this isn't a moment for science. It's a moment for performance. So it's got to be underpinned by some good principles. Does this make sense to us? But anyway, is it effective? Does it help me? Uh, And people will only keep using things that are helpful uh, or useful as we're talking about before. No, absolutely. W- one thing you hit on there,
0: uh, and I'm just always fascinated, is with vis- visualization. Uh, I would love for you just to tap into this for a minute um, and, and even discuss any techniques you have. Uh, I'm, I'm always looking for ways to improve this and how I should be thinking about it.
1: Sure. Uh, look, I don't pretend to be an expert at visualization and you know imagery, but in practical terms, he- here's an approach I've developed that people have found useful. That's what they've sort of said. So let's, let's rely on that. How much time have you got? So put yourself in it again, work backwards. What's the, what's the moment? So this isn't a moment where I've got hours and hours. I want to be able to do this relatively quickly. And so that's that time constraint again. And so I would argue this is a, a benefit. So the first thing I'm going to suggest is rather than looking at what we're going to do, it's the it's the shape, it's the format. And, and that's often the bit that is the, I guess, um, key for people to understand that if we've got a simple structure and it's quick, then I can sort of fill in the blanks. So, what is that structure? Well, the READ system is going to be firing. So, the first thing that we need to do, if you, if you think about it, is control our level of energy and arousal, depending on you know, what word you like to use. And so, some people get too worked up and over aroused, in which case it's settling that down. And some people aren't fired up enough, they're too flat. And so, that's getting more energized and activated. And so being able to do that pretty quickly, and I'd argue timing that with three breaths is is a good way of trying to train that. And there's an imagery process around that. You know, we haven't got time to do that right now, but what I'll be doing is working on that imagery of seeing either fire or ice, for example, expanding throughout the body. And so really the red is the body system. And so trying to adapt and place attention on that relatively briefly. Then moving quickly into an overview. And this is really a blue activation part. So we've switched on red or adapted that. Now what about the blue? And really a good way to get that is to get an overview of the situation. And it's to see yourself in a moment towards the start of your performance, what's going to happen in a decision-making moment and seeing yourself with the options and making that good decision. Again, there's a breathe in and then there's a breathe out sort of process around this whereby you can actually imagine that. And then the third part is the action. So the red and the blue, now let's bring them together. And that's in the timing here. So if you see yourself now first person, so instead of the overview, you're seeing it through your own eyes and it differs across different people, we know this. But seeing it through your own eyes, that situation, and then the timing, the click moments when you take action. And again, breathing in and doing that and just repeating that a couple of times. And so the simple structure that I sort of landed on was working through the red system. Again, one thing and just repeating it. Then the blue system, one thing, one moment, and then just repeating that. And again, then the action. And so you're really mirroring that red-blue tool we talked about, about the step back, step up, step in. You're really priming yourself to get going in that moment. Now, most people can do that in about a minute, and it's a bit vague, but often you've only got a couple of minutes, so I suggest just doing it again. Same process, a really simple, I'm going to the body, I'm going to the mind, and then I'm bringing the two together, and that simple structure allows them to feel like within two minutes, they're ready to go, and they can use that anywhere. They can use it on the team coach that we talked about or in the dressing room, or you're just about to go in uh, ready to speak at a big event. So in two minutes. If, if you're not ready to go in two minutes and it takes you longer, think about that. And often what I find is people can have, if they've already got something there, terrific, You know, keep to the system. But this is an example of a tool when people haven't got something, they're not ready to go here uh, and they need something simple and structured and they just follow through it. It's not doing any harm for most people. It doesn't suit everyone, and and you'll find those people don't tend to go towards the visualization procedures anyway, and so you've got to bear that in mind. But for those that do want to prime themselves in that way and and be a step ahead of it, this gives them that simple structure uh, to go through. Um, So like I have names for that, but the first thing is controlling your intensity. The next thing is controlling your clarity, the big picture. And the next thing is controlling your execution. And it's just sort of a natural progression through. So you can call that the ice tool if you want. The way I see it is really, you're going from a planning sort of state into now I'm uploading that. I'm uploading that and priming it ready to go so that when I'm into the action moment, actually I've primed my systems in a simple way. Um, and it goes back to, I, I guess, to, rem- to remind me to sort f- finish off that story. We're talking about the, the teenagers at school. The idea is that there's five or six ideas here, uh, and it can be this tool, or this tall, but, there's one core idea, just one core idea, and that was the thing that gave them simplicity. It was this red-blue mind model. We can apply it beforehand. It's more in this shape. We can apply it during. It's more in this shape. We can apply it just beforehand. It might look slightly different, but it's all versions of the same thing. And I think that's what you know really was appealing for them. It's just one thing to think about in balance, out of balance, and all of these things, whatever shape or words I might use, is simply around giving them a simpler approach that's got a simple structure that they can go to and they've practised and rehearsed so they feel like doing something. And in particular, if you can anchor that physically, you know, that first bit is about a breath, isn't it? So many people just shut down and get a bit constricted. So that deeper breath, we know that whatever version you take. The next bit is about the eyes. Uh, because so many times we, we get that central vision, the fixation, the tunnel vision, and we lose the situational awareness. Or, you know, what happens to athletes after a mistake? Often where do the eyes go? Head down. Yeah. We go into ourselves and feel sorry for ourselves, or we look up yeah. to the, the heavens and appeal to our universal God about why they're being so cruel to us today. And so actually there's a skill about keeping eyes level. Uh, because eye-to-eye eye is brain-to-brain, brain, so we know that. Um, and so that's where all the feeling is, you know, particularly red brain-to-red brain, if we're looking at each other and we know the amount of physiology that's going on in that moment. So being able to keep your eyes level, that's the eye. So the breathing, the eyes, and then the click, the sound, the moment, uh, and giving someone the gift of choice over timing actually starts to free people up for performance, so they know they don't want to go too fast, and they know they want to go too slow. So you don't want to be impulsive. You don't want to be hesitant and procrastinate. So you decide. And once, once people are focused on the timing, then they've got the feel. And that's really what people talk about. You go back to your description. You're just feeling your way through. You weren't quite sure where it was going to go, but it was quite a creative moment. And those are the big moments, aren't they? Where you've cut through the survival moments where things are shut down. And actually now there's there's more possibility here. It's an opportunity.
0: Kerry, you, you deal with such abstract thoughts and ideas and distill them down in such a great way. So I'm wondering, how do you go about distilling your thinking? right? Like these are ideas you've worked with and wrestled with for years. And I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, wow, this is, this is so elegant. This must've taken a really long time. I'm just curious about that process for you.
1: Yeah. Uh, I I think you hit on it. It takes a long time. Uh, You can't avoid going through that complexity. And so spending time just looking at at the words, but that's not the starting point. I'm working back, I guess, for putting myself, from putting myself in the shoes of people who are performing and what can they do in that moment themselves. And I think that's the, the sort of key. So what's going to be useful for them? That's It's got to be the reference point. If they can't use it, then it's not going to be useful. Uh, and so testing phrases, words out uh, takes a long time. It's evolved. The core idea was like a long, long time ago. Uh, But the language was key. The color coding seemed to be absolutely key for people's simplicity. Um, Part of the feedback from the students as well, you know, was that they loved the fact that it gave them permission. That was a word that came up to feel these things. Uh, It's okay. Uh, And so the narrative starts to change. It's not one where I'm feeling anxiety, I'm feeling discomfort, and that's a bad thing. So it's now a disorder or a disability or something that's not good. I'm feeling discomfort, which means I'm not feeling comfortable. That's it. Okay. Uh, Now let's be less judgmental about it. And now what do I do with that? Uh, And actually, can I now get out of, you know, being on the insides here and getting in my own way, and now can I focus uh, on the external world, you know, create the gap uh, for where I am now, where where I want to get to and start moving.
0: Yeah. So, so Dr. Evans, your book, Perform Under Pressure, incredibly helpful. You've distilled years down of, of your own knowledge in working with some of the most elite performers. Uh, it, it really was a very helpful guide for me. Um, much of what we discussed here uh, goes, goes so much deeper. And, and you can understand and adds even more context around that. You're a voracious learner, though. So I'm wondering, have there been any books or, or other things you've come across in, in your professional life that you think just left the lasting impact on you?
1: Yeah, I guess I was always drawn to the invisible. You know, it was that thing as I was developing through, you know, teenage years and sort of seeing sport and knowing that everyone knew it was important, what was going on inside, but no one seemed to have something that was fit for purpose. And so I've always been intrigued by the unconscious mind. So I guess this is getting to the clinical area, but those people that have developed systems that that they're attacking, you know, ideas that this has to take a long time and we're stuck. Look, there are constraints here uh, for most of us, but those that can work briefly uh, with people and unlock that potential, unlock that unconscious mind are the ones that I think have had the most profound impact, and, and they're the pioneers. Uh, so it's not just the discovery of the unconscious, but you know, how do you work with that? And you know, I guess, you know, the, the people like David Milan, uh in Britain, a psychiatrist. Uh, Again, you know, I I sort of followed many decades later, but he went on to become a landmark person in working with people like Davenloo who really understood and and focused on the clinical approach, taking videotapes by the thousand and seeing how people respond and trying to understand how to unlock uh, these emotional blueprints that we have. Uh, And so I think, you know, the books that they've written Uh, I'd refer people to, you know, it might be more in the the clinical area, but there's some real gems there in terms of the science and really trying to take us into a new world where we've got outcome studies, where we can see this is not just superficial, that people can be helped quite quickly uh, with brief interventions if you know what you're looking for. And then trying to think about that and take it into a world of performance, I guess, has been sort of... uh, a huge challenge and it, it, it sort of it, of course it's working at a different level and more at a distance but it's trying to create a practical model and practical language uh, that relies on some of that thinking it's very different of course and, and it's comparatively simple um but i think those are the people that in my mind are the you know the, the heroes
0: Maybe one of these heroes will be the answer to this question as well. But if there was anyone you could sit down an evening with doing an interview like this, they could be dead or alive, just not a family member or friend. Who would you choose to spend the evening talking with?
1: Yeah, I I could do worse than go for those two. Um, So understanding decades of, of psychiatry, uh, an inquiry into the unconscious mind and moving into a practical area and understanding all the figures that are around there, that would be hugely stimulating for me. So uh, David Milan, I, I met him briefly once. Uh, sadly, he, he recently passed away, I understand, um, at an elderly age. But uh, his res- respectful demeanour, uh, his humility, despite massive knowledge uh, and the willingness to take things forward in a, in a practical way I, I'd love to hear that story and be able to ask questions.
0: I, w- I would love being a fly on the wall for that conversation. Um, but Dr. Carrie Evans, uh, th- this has really been impactful for me. I appreciate this so much. The book, Perform Under Pressure. Of course, we're going to have that linked up in the show notes um, and where they can stay connected with you. Anything you want to leave the listeners with, though? A- any final words?
1: Uh, gosh, y- you know, the thing I think about when people ask me that, there's one... Uh, gem that sort of comes out of this it's more from feedback from other people I was surprised following the book different groups contact me out of the blue which is always the sort of nice moment I, I just don't know which individual group is, is going to be next uh, and schools were a big one in New Zealand farmers were a big one and so some of these, these other groups but there was one part of the book that people commented on and it got sort of picked up on and it was around the to-do list um, that seems to be universal. I don't know if you use to-do lists um, yourself, but, you know, I, I talk about this. This is a, you know, a, almost a universal um, process, isn't it? Yep. yep. And I describe, I describe, if we've got a minute, I describe yep. to people uh, how I use to-do lists. So I'm not against them, just be clear about that. But I was, I was making my list one day, and I looked at the, the previous day, and there was something I hadn't done, and I had to put it on the new list. And, of course, you know, everyone understands that this is just the process. But how can that be? These are designed to allow us to tick them off and do them. Now, a to-do list is a simple sequence. It's got words. It's got numbers. It's got sequence. Again, it's blue brain heaven. So it feels good once you've done your list. But, unfortunately, nothing's been done. And so this is an application of red-blue. And if I see to you each item has a charge, emotionally, red or blue, small or large, which are the ones that sort of go to the next day, the next day, the next day, or the next week, and we just put off all the time. And so if we're thinking about, you know, not elite performance, just our everyday performance, we put the uncomfortable things off, don't we? But how does it feel when you get that uncomfortable one, you know, off your chest, off your shoulders? feels terrific. It's the relief of feelings come up, anxiety comes in, the tension's there, and once we've dealt with it, we feel relief. What does it feel like to do that every day for a week though? And most people look at me rather perplexed. I mean, who's ever done that? Uh, Now, some do, of course, but, you know, it it makes us realise straight away that really at a practical level, most of us are not performing anywhere near our capability. So I talk about uh, athletes and having a helpful person called a referee or umpire. And so they blow, they have a helpful person, these athletes, A whistle blows, they perform. A whistle blows and they stop. Times 100 is a football match. It's as simple as that. So they get these breaks. But we don't really blow a whistle on ourselves to perform. We just trundle along at the same level day after day, week after week, unless you're in something like sport uh, or, or have a defined moment. And so, therefore, one of the things we can do is rather than going away from time pressure, actually increase it. So imagine I've got a stopwatch here above your shoulder and... You think of that that difficult, uncomfortable item. You've written your list. There it is. It's the one that you're trying to avoid and go around and not do, and you'll do some emails and some other things. That one. Clock started. Stopwatch started. You've got five minutes. It's your micro performance. So step back, check on what you're doing, step up, and step in. So you do it or you don't. I don't mind. I'm not judging, but we'll chat away, and then I'll ask you some questions, and we'll talk about the weather and whatever, and then I'll go, you've got three and a half minutes. And it's surprising. But when I talk about this, to name it, time it, and move it, that has impact on people. So, the movement is that performance. But the name it is, there's this item, yeah, no, I'm avoiding that. That's a sort of step back. The step up is, well, what would I need to do? I need to pick up the phone. So, I ask questions like, do you have a phone? Does it have some charge in it? Do you know how to use it? Uh, and they go, I know what you're doing, but I'm not going to do it. So, it's, it's fine. It's your decision. We so often if you don't have two pathways i'm not doing it i'm not doing it i'm not doing it well you could do it and it's as simple as that and so the simple idea uh, is that you either complete the task or not and the opposite to completing is not not completing but complaining and so complaints kill culture whether that's a a team or a personal culture when's the last here's a question i like when's the last time you complained might not be to other people just yourself You know, it might be, I haven't got enough time or Kerry's going on or, you know, whatever. When's the last time you complained? And the complaint is a symptom. And actually, if you think in terms of complete versus complain, just for a moment, just those five minutes, that can change things around. You do that every day for a week. And so the idea of a completion culture is that you pick one task before midday. This is the to-do list uh, insight and complete it. And at the end of the week, Just notice, just be aware about how you feel, how you're thinking, and what you've done. And you'll have moved. And if that becomes a habit, so I found that with writing, just complete or complain, just get down every day, just do that. Uh, And so the final thing I often say when people ask me the question you just have is uh, people often say, You've been holding out on me, Kerry. Nobody else read blue, but complete, complain, you know, that was it. Uh, I complain all the time. It's not measured in weeks and months; it's in seconds. Uh, and so, it's just a reminder: you can't change what you can't see. And it goes back to again those simple observations that it's our state of mind. I've got to move from this one into just a more effective state of mind.
0: I love that, and Carrie, I would never complain if you ever go. On, but I could listen to you for hours. Believe me, you, every, everything <laughs> everything you you provide every time we talk is just so insightful. So. That was awesome. Uh, Definitely reformulating how I approach my to-do list. Uh, This has just been so helpful for myself. I know this is going to be impactful for the listeners. Uh, So Dr. Kerry Evans, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There.
1: Very generous. Thank you very much. You guys made it to the end
0: of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through.